This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. Chapter 6 The Four Horsemen We now come to consider the breaking of the seven seals of the book. Six of the seals are broken in Revelation 6. The seventh seal is broken in chapter 8-1 and is connected to the seven trumpets. We have seen in the preceding chapter that the book represents the treaty document of the New Covenant, the opening of which will result in the destruction of apostate Israel. What then does the breaking of the seals represent? Some have thought this to signify a chronological reading through the book, and that the events depicted are in a straight historical order. This is unlikely for two reasons. First, the seals seem to be on the outside edge of the book, which is in the form of a scroll. One cannot really begin to read the book until all the seals are broken. The seventh seal, consisting of a call to action by the blowing of the seven trumpets, actually opens the book so that we can read its contents. Second, a careful reading of the events shown by each seal reveals that they are not listed in chronological order. For example, in the fifth seal, after all the havoc wreaked by the four horsemen, the martyrs, calling for judgment, are told to wait. But the judgment is immediately poured out in the sixth seal. The entire creation, unseamed from the nave to the chaps, Yet, after all this, God commands the angels to withhold judgment until the servants of God are protected. 7.3 Obviously, the seals are not meant to represent a progressive chronology. It is more likely that they reveal the main ideas of the book's contents, the major themes of the judgments that came upon Israel during the last days, between A.D. 30 and 70. Several commentators have observed the close structural similarity between the sixth seals of this chapter and the events of the so-called Little Apocalypse. Jesus' discourse recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, which, as we have already seen, foretells the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, see chapters 1 and 2 above. As the outlines below demonstrate, all these passages essentially deal with the same basic subjects. Revelation chapter 6 Number 1. War verses 1 and 2 Number 2. International strife verses 3 and 4 Number 3. Famine verses 5 and 6 Number 4. Pestilence verses 7 and 8. Number 5. Persecution, verses 9 through 11. Number 6. Earthquake, decreation, verses 12 through 17. Matthew 24. Number 1. Wars, 
verse 6. Number 2, international strife, verse 7a. Number 3, famines, verse 7b. Number 4, earthquakes, verse 7c. Number 5, persecutions, verses 9 through 13. Number 6, decreation, verses 15 through 31. Mark, chapter 13, number 1. Wars, verse 7. Number 2, international strife, verse 8a. Number 3, earthquakes, verse 8b. Number 4, famines, verse 8c. Number 5, persecutions, verses 9 through 13. Number 6, decreation, verses 14 through 27. Luke 21. Number 1. Wars, verse 9. Number 2. International strife, verse 10. Number 3. Earthquakes, verse 11a. Number 4. Plagues and famines, verse 11b. Number 5. Persecution, verses 12 through 19. Number 6. Decreation, verses 20 through 27. This is very perceptive of the commentators. What is astonishing, however, is that many of them fail to see St. John's purpose in presenting the same material as Matthew, Mark, and Luke to prophesy the events leading up to the, the destruction of Jerusalem, while all readily admit that the little apocalypse is a prophecy against Israel. See Matthew 23, 29-39 chapter 24, 1 through 2, and 15 through 16, and 34, Mark 13, 2, 14, and 30, Luke 21, 5 through 6, 20 through 24, and 32. Few seem able to make the obvious connection. The big apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is a prophecy against Israel as well. The Biblical Background of the Horsemen The central Old Testament passage behind the imagery of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse is Zechariah 6, 1-7, which pictures the four winds as God's chariots driven by His agents, who go back and forth patrolling the earth, following and imitating the action of the Spirit. See following Revelation 5, 6. They are God's means of controlling history. See following Revelation 7.1 Where the four winds are identified with and controlled by angels. Also Psalm 18.10 Where the wings of the wind are connected with cherubs. Biblical symbolism views the earth, and especially the land of Israel, as God's four-cornered altar and thus often represents wide-sweeping national judgments in a fourfold manner. The horsemen, therefore, show us God's means of controlling and bringing judgment upon the disobedient nation of Israel. In particular, they symbolically represent the great devastations that Jesus predicted would come upon Israel in the last days of the Old Covenant era, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple, Matthew 24. Just as important as Zechariah in the background of this passage is the prayer of Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk 3. The traditional synagogue reading for the second day of Pentecost, in which the prophet relates a vision of God coming in judgment, shining like the sun, flashing with lightning. Habakkuk 3, 3-4, see following Revelation 1, 16 and 4, 5, bringing pestilence and plague, Habakkuk 3, 5, Revelation 6, 8, shattering the mountains and collapsing the hills, Habakkuk 3, 6 and 10, Revelation 6, 14, riding on horses against his enemies, Habakkuk 3, 8 and 15, Revelation 6, 2, 4-5 and 8, armed with a bow, Habakkuk 3, 9 and 11, Revelation 6, 2, extinguishing sun and moon, Habakkuk 3.11, Revelation 6.12-13, and trampling the nations in his fury, Habakkuk 3.12, Revelation 6.15. Habakkuk clearly interprets his imagery as a prophecy of the military invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans. God's heathen instruments of divine wrath, Habakkuk 3.16, see following 1, 5-17. Under similar imagery, St. John portrays Israel's destruction at the hands of the invading Edomite and Roman armies. The White Horse The book visions begin, as the messages did, with Christ holding a cluster of seven in his hand. As the Lamb breaks each of the first four seals, St. John hears one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! This is not spoken as a direction to St. John to come and see. It is, rather, that each of the living creatures calls forth one of the four horsemen, the four corners of the earth, as it were, standing around the altar, are calling for God's righteous judgments to come and destroy the wicked, just as the apostolic church's characteristic cry for judgment and salvation was Maranatha, O Lord, come, and bring anathema. Early Christian documents indicate that this phrase from 1 Corinthians 16.22 was repeated in the closing prayer of every church worship service for decades prior to the fall of Jerusalem. As the first living creature calls, St. John sees a white horse, its rider armed for battle, carrying a bow. The rider is already victorious, for a crown was given to him. Having achieved victory, he rides on to further victories, going out conquering and to conquer. Amazingly, an interpretation popular in some circles claims that this rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. Showing where his faith lies, one rider goes all the way and declares that the Antichrist is the only person who could accomplish all of these feats. But there are several points about this rider that demonstrate conclusively that he can be no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he is riding a white horse, as Jesus does in Revelation 19, 11-16. Second, he carries a bow, as we have seen the passage from Habakkuk, that forms the basis for Revelation 6, shows the Lord as the warrior king carrying a bow, Habakkuk 3, 9-11. St. John is also appealing here to Psalm 45, 
one of the great prophecies of Christ's victory over his enemies, in which the psalmist joyously calls to him as he rides forth conquering and to conquer. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Psalm 45, 3-5 We should ask a rather obvious question at this point, so obvious that we are apt to miss it altogether. Where did Christ get the bow? The answer, as is usually the case, begins in Genesis. When God made the covenant with Noah, he declared that he was no longer at war with the earth because of the soothing aroma of the sacrifice. Genesis 8:20-21. And as evidence of this, he unstrung his bow and hung it up in the cloud for all to see. Genesis 9:13-17. Later, when Ezekiel was raptured up to the throne room at the top of the glory cloud, he saw the bow hanging above the throne, Ezekiel 1, 26-28, and it was still there when St. John ascended to heaven, Revelation 4, 3. But when the Lamb stepped forward to receive the book from his Father's hand, he also reached up and took down the bow, to use it in judgment against the apostates of Israel. For those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has guarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 26-31 It was thus necessary that the first writer should be seen carrying the bow of God's vengeance to signify the unleashing of the curse upon Israel's ground. For these apostates, the Noahic covenant is undone. St. John's first readers would immediately have understood his reference to this writer with the bow as speaking of Jesus Christ, on the basis of what we have already seen. But third, there is the fact that the writer is given a crown, and this too agrees with what we know about Christ from Revelation chapter 14, 14, and 19, 11 through 13. This Greek word for crown, Stephanos, is used seven times in Revelation with reference to Christ and his people. Chapter 2, 10, 3, 11, 4, 4 and 10, 6, 2, 12, 1, and 14, 14. The fourth and final point, however, should render this interpretation completely secure. The writer goes out conquering, this is the very same word in the Greek as that used in the letters to the seven churches for overcoming or conquering. See Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, and 26. 
3, 5, 12, and 21. Consider how the Revelation has used this word up to this point. He who conquers, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 3.21 The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the book. 5.5 And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. 6.2 It is Christ who is the conqueror par excellence. All events in history are at his command, and it is entirely appropriate that he should be the one represented here as the leader of the judgments of God. He is the center of history, and it is he who brings judgments upon the land. His opening of the new covenant guaranteed the fall of Israel. As he conquered to open the book, So he rode out in victory to implement the meaning of the book in history. He rode forth at his resurrection and ascension as the already victorious king, conquering and to conquer, extending the application of his once-for-all definitive victory throughout the earth. And we should take place special notice of the awful judgments following in his train. The horseman represents the forces God always uses in breaking disobedient nations, and now they are turned against his covenant people. The same holds true, of course, for all men and nations. All attempts to find peace and safety apart from Jesus Christ are doomed to failure. The nation that will not bow will be crushed by his armies, by the historical forces that are constantly at his absolute disposal. There are differences between this vision of Christ and that in Revelation 19. The primary reason for this is that in chapter 19, Christ is seen with a sword proceeding out of his mouth, and the vision symbolizes his conquest of the nations after A.D. 70 with the gospel. But that is not in view during the breaking of the seals. Here, Christ is coming against his enemies in judgment. He is coming not to save, not to heal, but to destroy. The awful and terrifying writers who follow him are not messengers of hope, but of wrath. Israel is doomed. The Red Horse As the Lamb breaks the second seal, Revelation 6, 3-4, St. John hears the second living creature saying, Come! In answer, a rider on a blood-red horse comes forth who is granted by God the power to take peace from the land, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword is given to him. This second rider, standing for war, shows how utterly depraved man is. God does not have to incite men to fight against each other. He simply orders his angels to take away the conditions of peace. In a sinful world, why are there not more wars than there are? Why is there not more bloodshed? It is because there are restraints on man's wickedness, on man's freedom to work out the consistent implications of his hatred and rebellion. But if God removes the restraints, man's ethical degeneracy is revealed in all its ugliness. John Calvin wrote, The mind of man has been so completely estranged from God's righteousness 
that it conceives, desires, and undertakes only that which is impious, perverted, foul, impure, and infamous. The heart is so steeped in the poison of sin that it can breathe out nothing but a loathsome stench. But if some men occasionally make a show of good, their minds nevertheless ever remain enveloped in hypocrisy and deceitful craft, and their hearts bound by inner depravity. All this was abundantly fulfilled in Israel and the surrounding nations during the last days, when the land was filled with murderers, revolutionaries, and terrorists of every description, when, as the historian Josephus wrote, every city was divided into two armies encamped against one another, and the preservation of the one party was in the destruction of the other. So the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood, and the night in fear. It was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies, still lying unburied, and those of old men, mixed with infants, all dead, and scattered about together. Women also lay amongst them, without any covering for their nakedness. You might then see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities, while dread of still more barbarous practices which were threatened was everywhere greater than what had already been perpetrated. The Jewish War, Volume 2, 18-2 The Black Horse Following on the heels of war is the third angelic rider, Revelation 6, 5-6, on a black horse, holding a pair of scales in his hand, a symbol of famine from the prophecy of Ezekiel, in which the starving inhabitants of Jerusalem were forced to weigh their food carefully, Ezekiel 4.10. This horseman brings economic hardship, a situation described as completely chaotic, a voice from the center of the living creatures, for example, from God's throne, says, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This curse thus means a shortage of the necessary staples, a measure of wheat rising to more than 1,000% of its former price, consuming an entire day's wage, so that a man's entire labor is spent in obtaining food. This is God's curse on men whenever they rebel. The land itself spews them out. Leviticus 18, 24-28 Isaiah 24 The curse devours productivity in every area, and the ungodly culture perishes through starvation, disease, and oppression. Deuteronomy 28, 15-34 this is how God controls the wicked. They must spend so much time just surviving that they are unable to exercise ungodly dominion over the earth. In the long run, this is the history of every culture that departs from God's word. Josephus describes the frantic search for food during the final siege. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it and every day both these horrors burned more fiercely. For since nowhere was grain to be seen, men would break into houses, and if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied their possession of it, 
If they found none, they tortured them as if they had concealed it more carefully. Proof whether they had food or not was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches. Those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over, for it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation. Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses, in the extremity of hunger. Some even ate their grain underground, while others baked it, guided by necessity and fear. Nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched, half-cooked from the fire, and torn into pieces. The Jewish War 5.10.2 On the other hand, however, in this specific curse on Jerusalem, the luxuries of oil and wine are unaffected by the general price rise. The black horseman is forbidden to touch them. In other words, just as the people of Israel were really beginning to feel the pinch of the failure of grain, it was time to harvest the grapes and the olives. The situation is ironic, for you can survive on grain without oil and wine, but not the other way around. In all likelihood, Another dimension of this expression's import is that God's messengers of destruction are kept from harming the righteous. Scripture often speaks of God's blessings upon the righteous in terms of oil and wine. Psalm 105.15 And, of course, oil, oil and wine are used in the rites of the church. James 5.14-15 1 Corinthians 11.25 This would then parallel those other passages in which the godly are protected from destruction. Revelation 7.3 The Green Horse Finally, the fourth seal is broken. Revelation 6.7-8 And the fourth living creature calls up the last horseman of judgment, who rides a green horse, the green color connoting a sickly pallor, a presage of death, Thus, the fourth rider, with a much broader and more comprehensive commission, is named Death, and he is followed by Hades, the grave. Both having been set loose by the Son of Man, who unlocked them with his key, see Revelation 1.18, authority is given to him to bring four plagues upon the four-cornered land, to kill with sword and with famine and with death, and by the wild beasts of the land. This is simply a summary of all the covenantal curses for apostasy in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Moreover, it parallels God's listing of his four basic categories of curses with which he punishes ungodly and disobedient nations. My four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. Ezekiel 14.21 See following Ezekiel 5.17 At this preliminary stage, however, and in keeping with the foreness of the passage as a whole, death and the grave are given authority to swallow up only a fourth of the land. The trumpet judgments will take a third of the land. Revelation 8.7-12 And the chalice judgments will devastate it all. 
Conclusion Perhaps the most significant obstacle to a correct interpretation of this passage has been that commentators and preachers have been afraid and unable to see that it is God who is bringing forth these judgments upon the land, that they are called forth from the throne, and that the messengers of judgment are the very angels of God. Especially vicious and harmful is any interpretation which seems to pit the Son of God against the court of heaven, so that the curses recorded here are seen as somehow beneath his character. But it is Jesus, the Lamb, who breaks the seals of judgment, and it is Jesus, the King of kings, who rides out in conquest, leading the angelic armies against the nations, to destroy those who rebel against his universal rule. It was crucial for the early Christians to understand this, for these judgments were even then breaking loose upon their world. In every age, Christians must face the world with confidence, with the unshakable conviction that all events in history are predestined, originating from the throne of God. When we see the world convulsed with wars, famines, plagues, and natural disasters, we must say, with the psalmist, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. Psalm 46, 8 Ultimately, the Christian's attitude toward God's judgments upon a wicked world is the same as that of the four living creatures around the throne, who joyfully call out to God's messengers of judgment, Come! We too, in our prayers, are to plead with God to bring down His wrath on the ungodly, to manifest His righteousness in the earth. Faced with these awesome revelations of judgment, what is our proper response? We are told in Revelation 22:20, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.